0: Good blending there of uh, a good old hymn, And Can It Be, written in the 18th century, followed up by a very newer hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, and uh, just uh, two great, great uh, songs that express our faith. If you will, um, I'd ask that you would join me in prayer. What an honor and a privilege it is, Lord, to be invited to enter into your presence in prayer. As we read in Genesis, Lord God, that um, we draw near to you, what's even amazing is that you permit such an act. That dust, as we heard, like us, are permitted by the great God to come into his presence and make petition. What a great privilege and an honor, Lord God. So we pray that you would have mercy upon us, and and we thank you, Lord. We come before you this day, and we pray, Lord God, as um, we lift up, and this day has been called a day of prayer. Lord God, in regards to uh, this virus that is going around, Lord God, and I pray that I thank you, Lord, that whatever one might think of our current president, Lord God, that he has called believers to call upon your name. So, Lord, not in obedience to him, but in obedience to you, we come before you and we lift up our petitions to you. And we make mention, Lord God, of our need. In fact, prayer is a confession that we need you. Prayer by its very act is that we are utterly and completely helpless. And so we plead to you, Lord God. And first of all, Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that the church on Randall Place would be a place that demonstrates both love and faith. That we would love our neighbor as ourselves and we would trust you. Strengthen us, Lord God, to do these things. Father, in a day of panic and days of panic and, and emotional, emotionalism, Lord God, we see people going to stores and, and hoarding for their own needs, Lord, or perceived needs. I pray, Father God, that we would be people who take a different approach. That if we buy extra, we would buy enough for ourselves, but if we buy extra, it would be so that we can give to those who have need, those who may not have the finances to go out and purchase at this time because they're waiting on a paycheck or their jobs may have been suspended or they are susceptible due to. Um, various illnesses or stages of life, Lord God, that getting out is a difficulty, that we would be able to love our neighbor by providing and helping them. Lord, we wouldn't just be thinking, oh, what do I need to do for myself so that I can hunker down and hole up and survive while everybody else struggles. Let us love our neighbor, Lord God. Let us be faithful to share the gospel with our neighbors. I pray Father God for our government officials, that you would give them wisdom uh, for containing um, this pandemic, Lord God. I also pray Father God, that they would be able to affect calm, and that we would uh we would be rational thinking people, not going on with the crowds that it would not be exaggerated, that it would not be minimized. Give them wisdom, Lord God, on how to communicate well. So we thank you, Father God. I pray for the medical professionals, first responders and, and, um, and others, Lord, as they um, work hard and diligently to serve your people. Vocation is a gift of God. And it is a high calling. It is how we love one another and medical professionals love their neighbor by putting themselves in harm's way for our good. We thank you. We thank you for that service. And we pray, Lord God, that you would bless and encourage and strengthen them. Those who are in stores, Lord God, who, who, uh, who are working hard, I pray that we would be grateful people. When we see people who are, who are working to help us, Lord God, people stocking shelves and truck drivers, we would thank them. Let's be grateful people because they serve us. Lord, we we look at empty shelves and we wonder, but somebody puts those shelves back, restocks them. Somebody's doing that. They are serving us and we thank you for that. Help us to recognize that. I pray, Father God, that we would demonstrate a trust in you. For you are our hope. You are our joy. You are our salvation. You are the one who rules the universe. I pray, Father God, that we would trust you. And now I pray, Father God, that you would uh, give us wisdom. Pray that you'd give me wisdom to effectively teach your word precisely, accurately, to speak of you in an accurate way, that I would not distort what you have revealed that I would not minimize it or exaggerate it but you would be faithfully revealed. I pray also, Father God, for uh, the congregation to be attentive to listen. That we would have ears to hear that we would be excited to hear what you would have to say through your word. So grant us those things, Lord God. Cuz I know we our minds wander, we go here and there, some some maybe sleepy, some distracted, some fearful, some self-confident. I pray, Lord God, that we would be here and we would hear your word. We would be faithful to it. So have mercy upon us this day, Lord God. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our, uh, our mission statement at the church on Randall Place is to be disciples who make disciples. That's what we want to do. Being disciples who make disciples. And we express that really by two basic commands in Scripture. The first one says this. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is a command of Christ. Follow me. That in order to be a disciple, one must be a follower of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ, you must follow Christ. That... um, tells us that one needs to be converted, born again. Follow me and I will make. That, that talks about a process, an ongoing. Uh, it's not like a, a one-time event and all of a sudden I am, I got everything figured out. I will make you. A di- and then finally, I will make you fishers of men. That tells us that we're going to reproduce ourselves. That disciples make more disciples. That's what they do. We, we also see that expressed in the command to um, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the command, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we see those very direct um, instructional teaching. When we come to the book of Acts, the book of Acts has... Less is concerned less with that instruction, that direct instructional teaching. However. It instructs us by example. So today as we enter into this text in Acts chapter 18 verses 18 through 28. We're going to be seeing disciples making disciples. There is no command. I want you to understand there is no command in this passage to make Disciples. The command is already given by Jesus in those, first, those two instances I gave you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men and make disciples of all the nations. The command has been given. What we are seeing in Acts is the working out of that command. And so today we're going to look at how the early church modeled making disciples. So that's where... Um, uh, Just a little bit of background here of where we're going to go. Let me give you a preview uh, of where this message is going to go. I I give you this preview for for a couple of reasons. Number one, to remind myself so I don't go wandering off in all sorts of different directions because there's a thousand thoughts in my head and a million different ways I want to go. But this serves as a... uh, mm, A barrier, if you will, to keep me from going off in all of those nutty directions. So here's what we're going to see today. There's two really big themes. And the first theme is we're going to see Paul conclude his second missionary journey and begin his third. All right. He's going to finish one journey and he's going to begin his third missionary journey. So we'll kind of unpack that as we go along. And then the next thing we're going to see is, um, the next big theme is the development and the strengthening of God's people by God's people. Uh, This is a, a wordy way of saying discipleship. The development and the strengthening of God's people by God's people. So those are our two big themes. And if we're blessed, fortunate, or what have you, I will stay on those two themes. But for now, let's go ahead and follow along with me as I uh, read the text. And this will be in Acts chapter 18, verses, um, yeah, 18, 18 through 28. Here we go. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Strengthening the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the love and honor and respect of your holy word. Let it have a eternal blessing in our lives. Well, we are going to begin now with Paul concluding his um, second missionary journey. And I I brought a map up for you. Basically, um, we're going to see Paul travel from Corinth to Ephesus. And uh, so Paul's over here. This is that map didn't show up too great. But here's here's Corinth up in here. This is the second missionary journey. So he started here in Antioch and kind of all the way over here. Boop. And he is now in Corinth. He's going to go down here to, to Sancria and across here to Ephesus. So the, the text begins with after these things or after this. Basically, the background here is after this, after the ruling by Gallio. you'll need to go back to the previous text or listen to last week's sermon. After this ruling that um, the proconsul of Corinth put forth um, and this this ruling by Gallio, who was not a believer, but it did bring relative peace to this young Corinthian church. Paul stayed many more days. We don't know exactly how long that was, but he stayed many more days. And eventually then he leaves Corinth and he goes down to Sanctuary. He leaves with Priscilla and Aquila. And I want you just to note real briefly the order of the names. Because we were introduced to this couple last week. And when we were introduced to them, we were introduced to them this way. It was, he met a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. But now we see a reversal. Priscilla's name first. And this has caused many people to uh, think that perhaps Priscilla was the more eloquent or Priscilla was perhaps the, uh, um, just the one who kind of was prominent in this couple. But what's really important is to note that these two people, this couple, become key leaders in establishing and strengthening the church in Ephesus. Paul's taking them to Ephesus, and it is this couple that is going to have a huge impact on establishing and strengthening the church in Ephesus. In fact, we learn that there's a church in their house in Ephesus. This is a very, very important uh, couple. Uh, we see them strengthening and establishing a church in Ephesus. We see that uh, later in Romans 16, Paul tells us that they're in Rome and that there's a church in their house. So um, uh, a very uh, influential couple, uh, a, a couple that Paul, I believe, um, entrusts completely with the work of God. And so he travels with them uh, over to Ephesus, but before they get there, he stops in Samaria, and Luke tells us this rather interesting thing: that Paul gets a haircut um, in Samaria. Which you kind of think, well, why is Paul telling, or why are we learning that Paul gets a haircut? I mean, of all the things we could talk about, why talk about that? Well, it wasn't just a haircut. Paul, it says, was was. Um, taken a vow and usually when the the end of the vow you would get your you might get your hair cut. And this has caused all kinds of questions for Bible students and just all kinds of papers have been written on what was this vow. And pretty much everything you could probably think of has been suggested. Everything from this proves Luke doesn't know what he's talking about because Paul would have never taken a vow, so Luke you can just disregard the whole the book of Acts and probably Luke's gospel because he doesn't know what he's talking about. We would not go there. We believe that this is divinely inspired scripture. And for, wh- for some reason, the Holy Spirit included this. And um, others have said that perhaps this is a, a personal vow, a third view. And probably the, the, the best idea is that this was what's called a Nazarite vow. And th- you can read Numbers chapter 6 about that. Or wait, because when we're done with the book of Acts, I'm going to the book of Numbers. All right? So I was going to do Numbers bar- prior to Acts, but I didn't. So I'm going to pick up where I left off and pick up the book of Numbers. And when eventually we'll get to the chapter 6, and we will look at a Nazarite vow. And basically it was a, a vow of perhaps of thanksgiving, but it was a vow of setting yourself Apart for God. And uh, in doing so, some of the requirements was that you would, you would drink, you would not have anything to do with the fruit of the vine. In other words, so no grapes, no grape juice, no wine, um, none of that. And this is why some people would say it's not a Nazarite vow, because Paul wouldn't have been able to take communion or the Lord's Supper under a Nazarite vow. Oh, and the other thing is you let your hair grow, you don't cut your hair. So no razor. Samson was a Nazarite, he had a Nazarite from his birth. That's how he had such long hair. Um, so he wasn't a very good Nazirite, but anyways, he was. He was. Um, and so most likely a, a, a Nazirite vow, and uh, there are a number of different reasons why people would think that it couldn't have been because a Nazirite vow would include going to the temple and offering a sacrifice, and Paul would have never offered a sacrifice in the temple. But anyways, most likely some sort of Nazirite vow Taken in thanksgiving to God, as he and probably for preservation, because now that he he leaves Corinth. Remember when he was in Corinth, what God told him? He says, "Listen, don't worry about preaching the gospel here. I got you. No harm is going to come to you while you are here." And that's got to be a great promise, because Paul's been beaten, left for dead, and now he's in Corinth, and God says, "While you're here in Corinth, I got you. No harm is going to come to you." Maybe that's why he stayed almost two years. He's like. Oh. Hang out here for a while. But now he leaves and he's taken this vow and he is now um, his vow has come to an end. And uh, so Paul gets a haircut and now he ends up over here in Ephesus. He comes across the ocean here to Ephesus. And this was a closed door. I think when Paul was on his second missionary journey, his original goal was to go to Ephesus um, because that's where the highway goes. And he would have wanted to go there, but he was um, the Holy Spirit hindered him from going there. And So now this open door, um, this closed door is now open. So he gets to Ephesus and a couple things happen in Ephesus that I find interesting. The first thing that happens is very expected. We should not be surprised that Paul goes to a synagogue and begins to preach the gospel. Right. That's Paul's MO. That's what he does. Wherever town he goes in, he goes to the synagogue, shares the gospel. Nothing new there. But then something very unexpected happens. And what's unexpected is that Paul is well-received in the synagogue. Well, we saw that a little bit in Berea, but um, he's well-received. They're like, oh, this is awesome. Why don't you come back and teach us some more? This is great. We're not going to beat you up. Awesome. Awesome. Now here's the most unexpected thing that happens in Ephesus. Paul says, "No, I don't think so. I'm leaving." Right now, does that strike you? That strikes me as a lot. I go, I have a good reception, and everybody wants to hear uh, more about me preaching the gospel, and I'm going to say, "No, I've got to go." That's really unexpected. So of course, people ask the question, "Why?" <laughs> Two reasons. Why would he leave such a fruitful ministry and why would he leave the Ephesians, kind of abandon them when he's preaching the gospel? Well, we'll answer both of those questions. First of all, um, it appears that Paul, the thought is, is that Paul is, needs to get back to Jerusalem to observe a Jewish festival. Now, if you have a King James, anybody here got a King James Bible? All right. In your King James Bible, it says that he had to uh, uh, get back to Jerusalem to attend a feast. All right. And in the Western text, we have different families of text, and I'm not going to get into that. But it's it's a, a much newer text. Um, it's much more recent. And that is in the statement. But the older... Manuscripts don't have that. So all we, all we have is that Paul went back to Jerusalem. But the idea is he went back to, uh, to observe one of the feasts, probably Passover. Um, this wasn't unheard of because we'll see in Acts chapter 20, Paul um, wants to get to one place so that he can uh, make sure that he's um, observing a particular feast. Now, here's the interesting thing that we know for a fact. Passover, I, I think this is... Um, more likely than not that this is about 52 A.D., and we know that Passover in 52 A.D. fell in early April. And the shipping lanes... I don't have my map up there anymore, that's okay. And the shipping lanes didn't open until March 10th. So a very, very short period of time. The, the shipping lanes pretty much closed for the winter. They didn't do a lot of uh, ocean, open ocean travel in, in the wintertime, and this was a long voyage, um, and basically, the shipping lanes were closed, and so they opened in March tenth Passover 's in early april it 's a long journey he he 's got he 's got to go, so he gets on a ship and off he goes so the first one is is uh, why does paul need to leave? Why does he need to leave well he 's got a time frame he wants to get back to Jerusalem to um, uh, to celebrate the Passover. But the second question is, why would he abandon the, the Ephesians who just want to hear the gospel? And I'm glad you asked that question because he didn't abandon them. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? These are two very capable people. And this is Paul's MO. This is what he does. He goes into a town, and he proclaims the gospel, and as people respond, he always leaves somebody or sends somebody back to establish and strengthen the people. So if Ephesus is in great hands, two, a great um, missionary couple, are there to do exactly what Paul needed to have done. Paul's preaching the gospel. Do you think for a moment that if Priscilla and Aquila didn't continue preaching the gospel? They went back to the synagogue and kept preaching the gospel. In fact, in just a little bit, we're going to see that they're in the synagogue listening to messages. So they're there, Paul has left Ephesus in good hands. Paul trains leaders who can take on the work of God. This is what Paul does. We'll see this as we, we go along. Paul le- leaves Ephesus in hands incapable hands, because he's, he's just spent about a year and a half with Priscilla and Aquila, and he's been training them, equipping them to do the work that they are now being called upon to do. So this is what Paul does. And then he says, I'll return to you if God wills. I'll return to you if God wills. And I know sometimes we think, oh, well, that's a big lack of faith, if we say if God wills, but This is what James says. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so Paul's like, listen, I've been shut off from coming to Ephesus in the past. It's quite possible I may never return, but if God wills, I will return. And as it turns out, Paul comes back to Ephesus, actually spends quite a bit of time in Ephesus and uh, uh, does very, very, it's a very productive time. But at this point now, he leaves. And he comes to the end of his journey. And uh, I think I have a map. I don't know. Do I have a map? There we are. There it is again. So Paul sails this long, long distance across this open ocean. He comes down, he gets off in Caesarea, and then it says he goes up and greets the church, and then he goes down to Antioch. So what that means is that he went up to Jerusalem. That's probably where the Passover was being done. He greets the church, informs them of everything, because you always go up to Jerusalem. Um, and so he greets the church, tells them what's going on. Listen, here's the progress as with the gospel reaching to the Gentiles. And then he goes down to Antioch. All right. And that's where he started. Antioch's his home church. And he spends some, some time there and he begins to teach and he shares the, uh, what's going on with the, uh, uh, with the church, or with the mission. Gives a report to the apostles in Jerusalem. Then goes back to Antioch and reports to the church there. And then it says this. He spent some time there, and after spending some time there, that is in Antioch, he departs, and he goes from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So here's, the, here's Galatia, Phrygia, just kind of a little region over in here, and he goes back through this area, strengthening the disciples. I hope you're starting to see a pattern here. Because if you'll recall Paul's first missionary journey, he kind of went this way and up into Lystra, Iconium and Derbia, Derbe, and then he retraced his steps to strengthen the churches and he came back. And now he started off on his second missionary journey and he went through these areas, strengthening the churches. This is now his third time going through this area to strengthen the churches. In fact, the whole third missionary journey is simply a retracing of his second missionary journey. Here it is. It looks a lot like the first or the second. But Paul goes this way, comes across to Ephesus, goes up here. This is all what he did on the second missionary journey. But he goes down and then he comes back. He is just retracing his steps over and over and over again. He shares the gospel. Then he establishes a church there. He leaves um, disciple makers there and he comes back and he visits them and strengthens them. Paul is strengthening disciples as he goes along. He retraces his step. He builds up what he's already established. In other words, Paul just doesn't simply go into an area, preach the gospel and leave. Paul goes into an area, preaches the gospel, establishes the church, raises up leaders and then longs and seeks and desires to come back and um, strengthen those churches. Look at what he says. This is a great passage in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to just read verses 24 through 29. And listen to Paul's love for, his chur- for these churches. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and a part, okay, that's pretty extreme, but look what he says, and a apart from other things, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? I suffered and got beaten to bring you the gospel. That's all worth it. Here's what really grieves me. That's temporal. What, when you're weak, I struggle. I have such a compassion and a desire to see you succeed and to be strong. That when you're weak, I'm, I'm terrified by these things. And when somebody brings a false gospel, I'm indignant. How dare they come and have anything to do to undermine the work of grace in your lives. If you've got to beat me, beat me. But don't think for a moment. That's the worst that can happen. The worst that can happen is for you to be weak and for you to struggle. Oh, man, we saw this in Thessalonians when Paul says, I was so worried about you. I had to leave. We were forced out of Thessalonica and I had to leave. And I just was in anguish over concern that perhaps somebody would come in and undermine the gospel we preach. And so when at the first chance I could, I sent Timothy up to make sure you're OK. So Paul is now retracing his steps, making sure the churches are OK. Are you good? Have you abandoned the gospel? What do you guys need? How can I encourage you? How can I share the gospel with you? How can I strengthen the churches? This is what Paul does. And it really becomes the DNA of all of the churches that he plants. They become... He goes and he makes disciples and then they send out disciples. And so this is just a quick review of Paul's journey's from um, Corinth over to Ephesus, down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, and then down to Antioch. And now he is somewhere in this area, and we're going to leave him for a moment. Luke now is going to pick that up uh, next week, but for now, we go back to Ephesus. So meanwhile, back in Ephesus, all right, we're going to be, we are introduced to another interesting individual This individual is Apollos. So I want you to meet Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos. Notice how Apollos is referred to. He's a native of Alexandria. Um, So the first thing that tells us is that Alexandria is in Egypt. So he's an Egyptian. Um, It was probably the academic center of the world. Um, This is where... And if you wanted to be a scholar, Alexandria was the place to go. In fact, at this time, the great philosopher Philo was living in. Was from Alexandria. He was probably living at this. Well, he was living at this same time. It's quite possible that Apollos knows Philo, who's probably one of the greatest religious philosophers um, of all time. I don't. He, he understood um, the Jewish law very well, um, and so. More likely than not, um, Apollos knows Philo. So he's Alexand—he's a Jew. He's from Alexandria. He's eloquent. He's competent in the st- scriptures. He's instructed. This is a pretty good description of Apollos. And by the way, Paul speaks highly of Apollos. Um, I gave you a list of scriptures, but Paul speaks very highly of Apollos and considers him... Um, um, in very high regard, and so Paul now f- follows Paul's lead. He goes from Alexandria into Ephesus, and he um, begins to speak in the in the synagogue. And look what we see, how what we know about his message in the synagogue. So again, he's following what what Paul has modeled. Now, a certain a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was eloqu- He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. I want to stop here. Look, Paul's now following the lead of I'm sorry, Apollos is following the lead of Paul. He's speaking in the in the synagogue. He's fervent in spirit. I don't think this is referring to the Holy Spirit. I think it's speaking of Apollos as just fervent in spirit. And notice this, he teaches accurately or precisely. Things about Jesus. I love that. Very precise. You need to know about Christ. I'm not going to be inaccurate or general. I'm going to be very specific about who Christ is. And so Apollo speaks accurately and precisely about Jesus. And then it says this, which is kind of a challenge, as though he only knew the baptism of John. That is, he understood the baptism of repentance that points to Christ. He is a man who seems to know Christ, but has an area of blindness or ignorance. Now, a lot of people have looked at this and, and said, Well, could Apollos even have been a Christian? Because how can, you know of the bapti- how can you not know of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and be a believer in Christ? How could that be? So many have argued that Apollos was not a Christian at all. He becomes a Christian in Ephesus. And I have to admit to you, I really wrestled with this. I wrestled mightily because there's really good argument to say that Apollos was not a believer. That he understood about the Messiah who was to come. And that he knew the baptism of John, but he hadn't been regenerated. I wrestled hard. I began Monday morning when I was beginning this preparing this text with that Apollos was a believer. And then I began to question it. But I've, I think I've landed on the fact that I'm going to argue that P- Apollos was a believer. You're free to, to disagree with me on that. But I think Apollos was a believer. And here's why I think Paul, Apollos was a believer. Um, First of all, he taught accurately about Jesus. He didn't teach accurately about Messiah. He taught accurately, precisely about Jesus. So he knows about Jesus. Seems like he would know about his resurrection from the dead. He doesn't just talk about a general Messiah who's to come. But no, he teaches accurately about Jesus. Here's the other reason that I'm I'm convinced that Apollos, well, I'm more certain that Apollos was a believer. And it's not by what Luke tells us, it's what Luke doesn't say. What Luke doesn't say is that Apollos was baptized. And for Luke, when a person becomes a Christian, they're baptized. We've seen that throughout the text, seen that throughout the book of Acts. And in fact, next week, I don't want to give the message away, Charlie's going to be preaching in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to look at 12 disciples. They were not believers. And the reason I know they weren't believers is because when it was done, they believed and were baptized. So Apollos, um, I think, is a believer. He's a man who knows Christ, but he has an area of blindness, perhaps an area of ignorance. And so since Luke makes no mention of baptism or, or belief, um, it seems as though Apollos is a christian who just doesn't know everything imagine that a christian who doesn't know any everything and so then look what happens and then this fits i think luke's big um the big picture of what luke is trying to tell us what happens priscilla and aquila come along and strengthen this believer this is the whole thing that i think luke is telling us paul goes off he strengthens believers who are struggling we have a struggling disciple, who a uh, follower of Christ, who is fervent, loves the Lord, knows accurately about Jesus, but doesn't know everything. So what happens? Priscilla and Aquila come in and strengthen and teach and disciple Apollos. How? They take him aside and they explain to him what he lacked. This is discipleship. It shouldn't seem odd. We shouldn't be questioning. Well, I wonder if Apollos was a believer or not. No, discipleship took place. You have a guy who's brilliant, obviously brilliant, and he speaks well. And Priscilla and Aquila hear him speaking, going, man, this guy's got it. But he doesn't got it all. He doesn't know everything. How about this? We have him over to lunch after, after synagogue worship, and we prepare a meal, and we tell him some of these things he's lacking. They take him on the side and explain what he lacked. This is discipleship. We should not think it odd or unusual that a believer doesn't know everything and another believer comes along and helps them. They see his gift and they help him to understand the person of Christ more fully. And probably more likely than not, since Luke pointed out that he only knew the baptism of John, they probably explained the baptism of Christ and what it means to be baptized into Christ or joined or brought into union with Christ. In other words, that one is not baptized in anticipation of the future work of Christ, that's John's baptism, but rather in response to the accomplished work of Christ. So I'm not baptized in anticipation of what Christ is going to do, I'm baptized into Christ um, signifying what Christ has already done. We might ask ourselves, what is baptism? What is baptism in the Bible? Well, um, I think one of the Best descriptions of Christian baptism in the Bible is found in First Peter chapter um, chapter three, and it is a it's a rather difficult passage of text on baptism. But I would encourage you, if you want to understand Christian baptism, look at that passage in First Peter and be ve- and and go through it carefully. Just casually reading it is going to have you thinking all kinds of crazy things. But if you begin to systematically work through it, I promise you this, there will be great riches for your diligent work in uncovering the beauty that is in in 1 Peter and how he describes baptism. It is worth the dig. You will need to dig down a little bit deeper, but I think it will be well worth the effort. The baptism basically is, as Peter says, it's an appeal to God. He says, it is a calling on God. It is a way of saying to God with my entire being, I trust you, God, to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus a substitute for my sin and to bring me through the waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus my Lord. See, Peter compares baptism with Noah. That's what he does. He says baptism is kind of like, like Noah and God takes Noah, brings him into the ark, and then takes him through the flood waters, and takes him not only through the flood waters, but delivers him complete. What were those flood waters? That was the wrath of God. So Peter, what Peter does is he associates the two things. He says, in baptism, basically, what you're saying is that God has taken me into Christ like he took Noah into the ark, and I have passed through the, the waters of God's wrath, and I have come through them and raised up out of them completely unscathed. Apologists didn't understand that. He knew, well, John's baptism is talking about, well, the Messiah is coming and you need to repent. I think Priscilla and Aquila say, let me explain to you what baptism is. It is God taking you into Christ. And in Christ, you're safe like Noah was in the ark and the waters of God's wrath flood and destroy everything. But not you, because you're in Christ. And you will be delivered out of the wrath of God, and you will stand before Him unscathed, just like Noah. So, so Peter uses those two examples, and what a beautiful example that is. He they explained to him, to, to, Priscilla and Aquila, explain uh, to Apollos the way of Christ more fully. You're in Christ. You've been taken through. Don't talk about a baptism of repentance. Talk about a baptism of how you've been saved through the wrath of God. And now you have been cleansed and washed, and God has taken you through. You are in Christ. What a great picture that is. And so, just a quick summary of this Um, a Christian, regardless of how gifted, doesn't know everything. A Christian, no matter how gifted, doesn't know everything. And here's the next thing. Older believers teach Apollos, but here's the crazy thing. Apollos receives their teaching. Two components on that, right? One component is, we need to sit down and disciple this this believer and show him the way more accurately. The other side of that is, I'll listen to what you have to say, brother. Sister. Two components. A Christian doesn't know everything. Now, here's the thing. I've been at this church 20 years. And I've spent a lot of time in classrooms. And this is going to shock some of you, and I hope you don't leave the church. But I don't know everything. I don't even know everything about Christianity. I don't even know everything about the Bible. And I appreciate it when you guys, there's instruction. When we gather together in small groups and we have Bible studies, I learn so much. This isn't so much a plug, but it is a plug for Wednesday night. But let me just say how much I'm learning in the book of Genesis. I really am. And not only from Samuel, but but, also, but, but certainly from Samuel, which by the way, Samuel is younger than I am. And so, here's a guy who's younger in age than I am, and he's teaching in Genesis, and I'm going, man, that's awesome. So, it's not even about age. He's catching up with me, though. Because he keeps getting a year older every year. He has another birthday. I don't seem to, those don't happen to me. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. But, but I learn, and, I, and I'm seeing connections that I've never seen before in the book of Genesis. I'm not going, oh, my goodness. How many times have I taught Genesis? How many times have I read Genesis? This is awesome. And then somebody in the, in the class says something. I'm going, that's awesome. I never put that together. But that makes that works. And we're teaching one another. So discipleship takes place not only in a formal setting, not only in a classroom, not only in a one-on-one, but as we gather, we disciple one another. And it's awesome. I'm learning stuff. And I'm grateful for um, the teachers in this church and not just the people who have formal teaching places, but those of you who just talk and say, well, I, here's how I'm understanding this or this is what I'm seeing in this text. And well, What do you think about that? Yeah, that's working. I think that's awesome. Or, you know, maybe not. Maybe that's not really where the text is going and we sharpen one another. This is discipleship. And this is what's going on in Ephesus. You got a brother that doesn't know everything. And somebody else takes them to the side and explains it to him and he listens to them. I think it's awesome. That's what the church is doing. That's what a church does. That's our mission statement. And then what we see is Apollos goes to Corinth. If you'll notice that. Um, he says, um, he began to speak boldly, but when... Uh, let me get to the right place here. And when he... Quer- wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So he goes over to Corinth, actually the region of Achaia, and he helps others. There's a couple of things here. So now, Apollos has been discipled. And he grows in his faith through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what does he do? Does he just stay there there and soak it all in? No, he goes out and he begins to teach. And he goes over to, to Corinth and he begins to teach in Corinth. And I love what this says here. It says, And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, there's that word again, encouraged him, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So here's what we have. We have a church in Ephesus. They see that Apollos is a gifted man who loves the Lord, who is competent in the scriptures. He now wants to go and teach others and the church gets behind him and says, yep, we affirm this guy and we're going to send our letter of recommendation. So that when he arrives in Corinth, they know that the church in Ephesus considers this guy. He's not a false teacher. He's not a shyster. He's not out for your money. He's not a weakling in the faith. This is a guy you can count on. And then the brothers in Achaia get to meet Apollos. They read the letter and go, oh, okay. The brothers over there affirm you. Welcome. Folks, this is just one church who's trained up a brother in the Lord, sent him out, and now they are affirming, saying, This man is a child of God. Treat him well. Bring him into your church. Perhaps where we even get the idea now of uh, sometimes when when a person leaves a church, there is a letter of reference sent with them to their new church. This may be a very Baptist thing, but that's what we do. It was new to me when I got here. I'd never seen that before. And all of a sudden, I get this letter saying, we need a letter of recommendation from you for this person who wants to join our church. For instance, met, many of you remember Ron and Yvonne Zika, and, and we miss them dearly, and we love Ron and Yvonne. And um, you still think that they didn't follow Christ when they moved back down to Phoenix, but that's just a personal opinion. <coughs> But I got a letter from their church saying they want to be members. Do you affirm them? And we wrote back. Yes, we affirm Ron and Yvonne. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They love the Lord. Their testimony is certain. Welcome them and receive them from us and, um, and receive them into your church. This is what churches do. We train people up and when they go out, we affirm them. Uh, part of our our covenant with one another is when we leave, if we leave this church or we leave this town that we will find another like-minded church. That's what we'll do. We we make that commitment to one another. And when that happens, what we are doing is we are saying, "Yes, we stand with that person." They are a follower of Christ. Their testimony uh, indicates that they are a believer in Christ and you can trust them. So welcome them into your church. Likewise, when we get people, um, we'll probably get a letter saying, receive this person. They are a faithful member of our church. They are believers in Christ. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not shysters. They're not teaching a false gospel. Receive them and welcome them into your church. It's just churches training people up. And when they're sent out, affirming them. And letting other people know, yeah, these people are believers. That's kind of what's going on here. But notice a very interesting statement. And they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed. Now that's a very interesting statement, don't you think? Who through grace believed. What is the origin of their belief? Came from grace. What came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, belief or grace? Grace came first. It is through grace that they believed. In other words, folks, belief is a gift of God. Belief is a gift of God. It's not the other way around. It's not like I believe and then God gives me grace. No, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Not that of yourself. It is a gift of God. What is the gift of God? Belief is a gift of God. If you believe, the the reason you believe is because God gave you the gift of faith to believe. See, belief in God is not native in fallen man, fallen mankind is. is unable to believe. We'll see that in John chapter 3. We all love John 3.16, but keep reading. It says we love our sin. We love darkness. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we can't believe the scriptures because they're foreign to us. They're spiritually discerned. Unless we have the Spirit of God, we can't understand them. It is a gift of God. As we study the fallenness of man, what we see is man is fallen in every part of his being. Regardless of how you may understand the nature or makeup of of man, the Bible says that he is completely fallen in his mind, in his spirit, in his soul, in his will, in his affections. Every aspect of mankind is fallen and unable to respond to God until God gives you the faith to believe. And this is what happens, the grace to believe. Belief is a gift. And how does that gift come about? Through the preaching of the gospel. That's how you believe. And so, Apollos, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And then he did this. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So now, what does he do? He proclaims the gospel to unbelievers. So what is Apollos doing? Apollos goes over, he strengthens the believers... And he preaches the gospel to unbelievers. This is the church. Do you see a theme? Paul leaves. Leaves it in the hands of Priscilla and Aquila. They're perfectly capable because they've been trained. Paul goes to other churches, revisits them, strengthens them. Priscilla and Aquila strengthens um, and encourages and, and teaches Apollos. Apollos goes and strengthens other churches and preaches the gospel for new believers. This, this is just what's. This is the church. Paulus goes to Corinth. He strengthens believers. He proclaims the saving gospel to unbelievers. So I'll I'll close with this. I often hear that we should be like the early church. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but in general, I'm for it. I don't want to be like Corinth, but... Or six of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, not those churches either. So I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I think I would agree in the sense that we could and should be like the early church. What did the early church do? They declared the gospel to unbelievers. And when some repented as a result of God's grace, they strengthened those believers in the truth. Willing to be taught, the people of God were then commended by the church to replicate the process. So here's what happens. The early church preached the gospel. People became believers. They grew and became strong in the faith, and then they went out and made new believers and strengthened them and grew in the faith. Sounds a lot like our mission statement. We are not any way, in any way unique. We just stole it from the Bible. And from some, and it's not like we're a unique church either. Look around church; They all have the same, pretty much very similar mission statement. Why? It's not unique. It's not creative. It's not cutting edge or anything like that. It's really old. Just this is the way the early church worked. And I pray that that's the way we would be as a church. We make disciples. We preach the gospel. We take new believers, grow them, send them out. And they're able to teach other believers and grow them up. And the process keeps going. And you're a disciple right now of Jesus Christ because that that cycle did not cease. Had it's, People kept making disciples. And eventually... Down through the centuries, it got down to the 20th century. And I'm assuming most people here were converted in the 20th century. Not all of you were. Some maybe in the 21st. But it entered into the 21st century. And you heard the gospel because somebody before you heard the gospel because somebody before them all the way back to the first century. And you're a believer today because that cycle keeps going. And if there are going to be believers tomorrow, it's going to be because the cycle keeps going. That is, we make believers, we make disciples, and so our mission statement, I'm not here to plug our mission statement, I'm here to plug this passage of text, and we just took our mission statement out of this passage of text, basically, is all we did. Being disciples who make disciples, that's what we do. So if you will, would you stand and we'll uh, we'll pray and trust the Lord to lead us. Our Father, we pray that you would continue to have mercy upon us. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to grow. Help us, first of all, to humble ourselves and realize we don't know everything. I've often said if you want to stump me, that won't be a very difficult task. It's a low bar. But I thank you, Lord God, that you have made yourself known to us. I pray, Father, that we would be people who help train up other people, help them to grow. And then they would take that and help other people to grow. And the cycle keeps going. And we'd be faithful to preach the gospel to those who, who have yet to respond to it. And we'd understand that through the preaching of the gospel, the gift of grace is bestowed upon people. And we pray that they would have hearts softened to hear you and receive you they would no longer love the darkness. But that your light would penetrate their hardened hearts. So give us grace this day and let us love you. And let us keep our minds fixed upon you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, last week, Sunday or Fridays are last week for the Ruth Bible study. So you want to be there Friday at the, uh, reconciled church, um, and check the bulletin for upcoming Bible studies or talk to Sandra. She's in the back with cute Nora. And, uh, so talk to them, talk to her about that Bible study, Wednesday Bible study in Genesis 6:30. here. We go till 7:45 ish or so. Um, we would love to have you. Um, we're moving through it well. Samuel's teaching that. Um, make sure you check up on your neighbors and let them know if anyone is uh, um, uh, or if anyone's in church or in communities that, that need some help. Maybe they're um, hesitant about going out or perhaps they just don't have the finances to uh, get the things they need. Um, let's uh, care for our neighbors. Continue to check your emails and Facebook group and bulletins for messages and updates. Um, but... Let's uh, love God and love one another. And so with that, let's bless one another with our benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful.